This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The founder of this company, 10 years ago, was trying to sell his house and went through real estate agent after real estate agent, and they were all talking a great game. And this guy who is selling his house, the founder of this, uh, this company, he's, you know, he's kind of an important guy and kind of, you know, should get the best treatment. And he said to his wife, if this is what it's like for us, how do people who have no clout ever get around this? So he started a company, and it went into business, I think, three years ago. Their deal is, their word is their bond. And they are just like you. Now, how can I say that? Because I'm the founder of the company. We have a thousand agents across the country, and they are people that listen to this show. And so when you go through real estate agents I trust, it's sent to somebody who already, you already know their sensibilities. They already are cut from exactly the same cloth. There's got to be a better way. There is. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Ladies and gentlemen. Billy Hallowell and Chris Field, The Church Boys. From the sublime to the ridiculous, but mostly ridiculous. I hate these guys. Billy, now I know we had a, a lot of stuff we wanted to talk about before we got started on the show, some fun stuff and some other things, but a very um, serious thing was just released in the last day or so. Uh, apparently, one of the um, candidates for president uh, is being held hostage and forced to release a video that made her look like a crazy person. <laughs> and bargain collectively. And I will fight back against so-called right to work. Right to work is wrong for workers and wrong for America. Now, having said all this, why aren't I 50 points ahead, you might ask? Well, the choice for working families has never been clearer. I need your help to get Donald Trump's record out to everybody. Nobody should be fooled. He proudly declared himself 100% right to work. He even hired a union-busting firm to break up an organizing campaign at his hotel in Las Vegas, where you are right now. And he built up his wealth by stiffing small businesses and contractors. That goes against everything we stand for as a country. My dad was a small business. I'm just businessman. I'm just happy he never did business with Trump. Hey, wait, how did you get, wait a minute. How did you get audio of my grandmother ranting on her front stoop? She well, suffers from dementia, and this is, I mean, I just don't understand why you'd f secretly film a woman with dementia. Okay, okay, I have to play it one more time, because I just can't, if you, uh, surely everybody listening to this has, has heard about this video, but if you haven't, I encourage you to go watch it, because the audio is fantastic, but the faces she's making while she's doing this is it's worth every almost second. like a Saturday Night Live skit that uh, came to life right. and merged with reality. <laughs> okay, just a second. Bargain collectively. Bargain collectively. And I will fight back against so-called right to work. Right to work is wrong for workers and wrong Blair for Gart. America. <laughs> now, having said all this, why aren't I 50 points ahead, you might ask? Well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, the choice... <laughs> Where is it? I gotta find it here. My dad's a small business. 
owner. <laughs> no, she said my dad's a small business first. I know. <laughs> this is my favorite one. This is the best. This and this is the title of the video. Oh, come on. Come on. Why aren't I 50 points ahead, you might ask? <laughs> the woman's a clown. And the fact that Wait. Donald Trump is the guy running against her. This is so disturbing. It is, it is it's so disturbing. A, really a disaster. It's, it, the, it's actually not depressing anymore. Now it's funny it's, because it's reality. There's nothing we could do about it. So the fact is Monday night is going to be the most glorious day. I think I it's it's up there with the biggest events in my life, in my mind at this point, watching this debate, because it's everything I've always wanted to see. <laughs> That's my expectation. Yes. Why aren't I 50 points ahead, you might have. <laughs> what a dope. I mean, uh. just... <laughs> I couldn't. I could not believe it was real when you said it to me. I said, "There's no way that I, this video is legitimate." Well, and it looks it's a like dumb smash. It's it, a dumb smash. <laughs> and where I started, what I thought it might be at first when I first saw it was like somebody on her team leaked her recording, a, like practicing a speech that she's trying to deliver. Like because it's <laughs> somebody that, leaked it's her. That, <laughs> it's forget. That, I'm not gonna say it. It's um, that bad. It is that bad. It is basically, I thought she was recording the Between Two Ferns uh, <laughs> segment. Uh, and this was a scripted comical moment. Um, but that was also amazing, the Between Two Ferns. Oh, man. Nothing, I don't care what you say, because I know what oh, your man. favorite part was. Nothing beat Zach Galifianakis asking her, you know, saying, I'd love to meet the person to meet your pantsuits. And Hillary <laughs> responding, really? And him saying... <laughs> yes, because for Halloween, I want to go as a librarian from outer space. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing beats that, that to was, her face. That was really good. The t my two favorite parts were probably at the end. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Email? <laughs> and I loved... Crap, what was the other... Oh, I just blanked on it. Now I'm just going to get ticked at myself. Anyway... Well, this is where I sound pro-Trump because oh, I thought it was annoying that the you know, the Between Two Ferns creator said Trump was too thin-skinned to come on. And right. I, and look, look, that may be true, but you should still invite everybody on. Like, right. that, you know, so it's like uh, here we are once again. And I will say this, love Trump or hate him, the, the media machine, some of it's his own doing, but you can already see the media machine – making sure that everything he does gets covered 10 times more than everything she does. Yeah. I do I do think that's true. Yeah. Well, and it's just it was it was a ton. Oh, I love uh, she says are you down with TPP? <laughs> she says I am not down. <laughs> you're supposed to say you're supposed to say yeah, I'm down. You know me. Like she says I'm not going to say that. Don't try to put, don't try to make me say something. He goes fine. Did she seem to pneumonia-ish? And then he goes did she seem like she had just, just a minute, then he goes fine, lose. <laughs> <laughs> I love. See, I'm a, I'm a big Zach Galifianakis guy. <clears throat> yeah, I like him too. And I'm not. A, I wasn't a fan of the Hangover movies, but I loved. Probably my favorite Zach Galifianakis movie is uh, Due Date with Robert Downey Jr. Did you ever see that? Yes. Oh hilarious. man, I laughed my rear end off. I've I've probably seen it three times, and I laughed just as hard the third time as I did the first time. I'm. Oh. It's funny. Uh, it's like the movie Rat Race. Do you remember the movie Rat Race? I loved yeah. that movie. Nobody else in America likes it. The remake. The remake. The 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 one with. I like the Whoopi. remake. I with Whoopi and all. Yeah. I thought it was funny. Yeah. All right. So you were asking me something about pneumonia. Oh yeah. So that's the weird <clears throat> thing, and I haven't heard very many people talk about it. It's it's a heavily clipped, heavily clipped uh, video, right? 
I mean, he's heavily edited. However, nothing in how she speaks gives you the impression that she has pneumonia. And the interesting thing is that Between Two Ferns video with, with Galifianakis was recorded on September 9th, the day she was diagnosed with pneumonia. How did you notice that? And why haven't you tweeted about it? How did I notice what? How did you notice the date and connect it? Did you were you CNN, curious? CNN reported it. Um, that it was that's when it was recorded, but it wasn't released until now. That's why they it says uh, the little Chiron that they put on there that said Hillary Clinton had pneumonia, right? It's the most remarkable recovery from pneumonia. I mean, she seems fine now. <laughs> yeah, and, a week and, and a, seems, a week and a half later, she which seems is fine now. And she seems and she seems fine in an interview conducted on the day she was diagnosed. So. It's strange. I don't believe, obviously, the conspiracy theories are whatever, and we're not going to go into all that. I, I don't believe, I don't necessarily believe them, but I am skeptical of everything that the Clintons say. So, yes. you yeah. know, because it tends to be a lie, shrouded in secrecy or not true <laughs> um, with both candidates in this election. But really with disturbing. this, it's, I think that that collapse was so strange the way that it looked yeah. um, that a lot of people are convinced secretly in their head that there's something more wrong with her or that it wasn't that. Maybe she fainted or has some sort of brain injury or or maybe it's just pneumonia but she clearly has the best immune system ever and finds it appropriate with with you know being infected to kiss her grandchildren and every other child in America that she encounters <laughs> on, the day, on the two days after her diagnosis so right. uh, <laughs> it's strange it's it's just a lie let me uh and then there was another thing I wanted, something else I wanted to play for you real quick here yes why aren't I 50 points ahead <laughs> you might ask I just had to you might you might add it if you were so depressed that you were one of the candidates. <laughs> um, you're just too depressed to even just, try to add up statistics and like, numbers. But I mean, it's like the 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 Republicans should be so excited they're running against her because it ought to be like clubbing a baby seal. I mean, it ought to be that easy. <laughs> but we what did we do? We bought out brought out Donald Trump. It's like, are you kidding? All I could do is laugh. Are you kidding me? We have this oh incredible gosh. opportunity. She has no. she has set herself up to lose. It's like she's trying to lose. <laughs> Somebody tweeted, "Oh my God, she's trying to lose." <laughs> <laughs> With that clip, oh, it's, it's oh, depressing. Man. It really is depressing. It really is. Okay, so we got to So okay, so we got to get this show going here. We've only been going for what eight nine minutes. Uh, so what are we, what are we doing today? What are we, what, what's, what's on the, what's on the dock? We got a couple interviews, right? We got that interview that we did with, um, what's his name and what's his name. And then the other interview with old, well, what's her name? <laughs> yep. Lots of interviews. <laughs> with what's, in a what's professional way. Uh, but we have two what, great interviews today, but we also, right. before we get there, and I think we should, we, let's talk about the story before we get into our first interview. Okay, and let's end. get a story going here. I, I want to, ah, gosh, there's so many, there's so many good ones, but I think that this particular, and, and it's a study, so studies can be a little dry sometimes, but I'm just going to break it down. This is um, something we've seen happening now repeatedly over time is that there's a growth in the number of people, the percentage of people who say that they're not affiliated with the religion. And we call them right. religiously unaffiliated. We call them the nuns, right. N-O-N-E-S. Um, now, some of this is a little tricky because, you know, yeah, okay, religiously unaffiliated doesn't necessarily mean atheist. Right. And in fact, atheists and agnostic are the smallest part of this group. The bigger part... Um, according to the Pew study, which came out in 2015, about 16% of these pe- of the country and of these people claim to be just unaffiliated. They're not associated with any particular religion. But um, 
what we've seen is a new study that came out from PRRI and Religion News Service this week that found that one in four Americans, so 25% of the country, are now part of this group. And it's, in fact, the biggest religious group now, if you if you combine them, all the people who aren't affiliated, hmm. bigger than Catholics, bigger than, um, which, which should be concerning to everybody, considering, right. um, and I just have the history in front of me here, that um, only, I believe, 6% of the country was unaffiliated in 1991. So you've gone from, and you, wow. if you graph it out, wow. if you look at when media became disgusting, like really disgusting, right. entertainment, Hollywood, all of it, yep. it's that's when it shoots right up. I mean, you can actually see the connection between where culture is and where, um, you know, and, and where, and where this increase has happened. So it's, it's crazy. Is this it's something crazy. that, is this something that would probably be covered thoroughly in oh, a forthcoming book? Yes, in huh. fact. Well, be it's darned. funny because I wonder. So I wonder why I've you're wonder why you're bringing this. I was wondering why you're bringing this story up. Bringing well, here's the attention. thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. I actually can't keep up, and this is how crazy is sure. the things that are happening. And the manuscript is for this book is done, yeah. and yet I keep having to go. I'm going to have to go back this weekend and rewrite like three chapters right. because this stuff is so crazy. But. But I bring it up because I think it's it's important, and I know that you have a lot of views on how you think. The church has failed and and has led to some yeah. of this oh, and chaos. We can get into that in a minute here. But go ahead. But I wanted to just say one thing because a lot of people will say, "Oh no, this isn't a big deal," because most of those people in in the unaffiliated, you know, they're not atheist or agnostic. Well, they asked a question in this most recent survey: How many of you are looking to find a religion? Right? Are you looking for right. faith? And only seven percent of those people said they were looking. Ninety-three percent are not even interested in looking. But but that's the thing is like if you're if you're one of the nuns and you're not interested in looking, you're essentially atheist or agnostic. I mean, you in you're virtually right. You're practically in all practical regards in the way that you live your life. You live it as though there is no God. And the fact well, is a lot. A lot of fact is a lot of Christians God still though. And and the interesting thing. Yeah, and but, this is why. But if you, well, they if even you, say you need you, God, right? Believe in God, but don't have any relationship with Him, and don't even seek to have a relationship with Him. Tells me that you don't really believe. Like Fair there's enough. a higher, there's a higher being, some sort of space alien that's responsible for. It. Okay, <laughs> fine, whatever. Well, but but one thing I just wanted to throw in because I think the most interesting part of it, because that's what everyone's talking about, is the increase in blah blah blah. And this was right. actually funded the research right. by the Stifle Free Thought Foundation, which is a millionaire atheist who I've interacted with quite a bit, who's an interesting guy. He funded this. Um, anyway, I would I would argue when we talk about the family and the breakdown of the family, and people dismiss it and they laugh and whatever. Divorce, children of divorce, mm. are far less likely to grow up and be affiliated with religion yep. later on in life, and they're yep. also far less likely to be churchgoers. So when we talk about marriage and divorce and all of that, it, it's incredibly important. And this study fa found, you know, right. and not just that. Right. Parents who are in interfaith relationships, those kids end up being less likely to be affiliated later on too. So right, because interfaith relationships tend to show that you know what faith isn't all that important because my my religion says this is the only way to get to heaven, only way to get to God, and this religion says it's only related to get to God. But yet we're going to have an interfaith family that we accept both ways. Well, kids aren't stupid; they're going to figure out. Wait, your faith says that your way is the only way to God, and and your faith says yours the, your way is the only way to get to God, yet we're going to say that both of them are the same. That means to me that you, neither one of you believe what you claim to believe. Yeah, kids, I, kids aren't stupid. Yeah. They see that. And then the marriage thing, the divorce thing, where do most marriages happen? 
whether the people are Christian or not, religious or not. Where do most marriages happen? They happen in a religious ceremony of some kind. That's what marriages tend to be. And if a kid sees that their parents, who's who the most important promise that these two most important people in their life have ever made were to each other in a religious ceremony, and those parents said, eh, forget it. The, the kid says, what good is a religious promise if the most important promise ever made, and it was made in a church or made in a religious ceremony, my parents are just going to ignore it. Okay. Fair enough. I think the other thing that should make people very nervous is, and and this, I get annoyed when I hear people saying, there's no, when we've had people on the podcast, well, there's really uh-huh. nothing to see here. You know, the nominal Christians are just no longer being Christian. And well, there's definitely something to see because millennials, which by the way, will be the future. Yeah. And, and they are the least likely of any generation at this point in their lives to embrace God, four times less likely than previous generations to embrace God at this point in their life, which means, you know, because everyone will say, well, young people always reject God. They'll right. come around later. Well, what we're seeing is they may come around, but they're far less likely right now to embrace God than anybody else was when they were their age. And right. so right. you got to figure out how to reach those people. And, you know, you work with young people. I work with young people. You see young people. You interact with them. They're very lost and confused oh, when yeah. it comes to theology. So, Yep. But the good news is apparently, uh, according to your buddy, is it Tim Keller? Yes. Uh, secularism is set to decline, not religion. Well, yeah, and this is, so this is a related story, and, you know, I covered this stuff over at DeseretNews.com, so go and read DeseretNews.com and read The Blaze, too, I guess, um, even though I don't work there anymore. Uh, but Chris does, so I read do, The Blaze. so you should read The Blaze, yes. This story is not on The Blaze, though. It's at DeseretNews.com, just to reiterate that. Where is it and again? Where it, is it again? DeseretNews.com. And anyway, so Tim Keller has a new book out. It's called Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. And it's basically a book for skeptical people, which I think is is sort of interesting. And he brings them into faith, tries to explain if if Christianity existed and if it was the real, obviously it exists, but if it were for real, Mm -hmm. here's what it would do for your life. So it's like the hypothetical, not trying to prove all these elements, but if it were true, here's what it would do. Um, which I haven't read the book, but that sounds like an interesting way in. And he makes a point of saying in this interview with the Christian Post, um, look, secularism is increasing in the U.S., but it's going to decrease overall, which is true. The, the Pew Research Center um, last year put out some projections, and um, there's some other interesting elements in these projections. I think we talked about them last year at the time. But bottom line is you're going to see – uh, secularism. Let's see here. It's going. The unaffiliated are going to go from 16.4 percent of the world's population in 2010 down to 13.2 percent in 2050. Mm. So there's going to be a decrease. Now Christianity, and this is this is going to depress some people. It's going to be 31.4 percent of the world in 2010, and it's going to be exactly 31.4 percent of the world yeah. in 2050. But Islam is going to bloom from thir- uh, 23 percent to 30%. Ugh, that's uh, so that's Islam amazing. is going to almost match Christianity in the number of adherents. Now, is, do, they, do they believe that that's largely con- related to birth rate among yes. Muslims versus <laughs> birth rate among Christians and unaffiliated? Yes. yes. Yep. That's so exactly it's a birth this rate. Was, it's a birth rate yep. thing. It's not a popularity of the religion thing. I mean, it's not like... Exactly. It's not an, evangel- it's not an evangelism thing. It's a birth rate. And these numbers may not end up playing out the way, you know, something big could happen that would change it, but they, they have a good sense of how to try to put these projections together. So yeah, it yeah. is interesting. it is interesting. Jews stay the same. Um, 
<laughs> folk religions decrease a little bit. Um, Buddhism decreases. Hinduism stays the same. So it's it, it's really kind of but fascinating. Inter- but interestingly, so that's those are worldwide numbers. But interestingly, <clears throat> if you take a look, <clears throat> if you take a look at uh, numbers in America, the growth or shrinkage of the popularity of a religion or a faith tradition does not seem to correlate to birth rates, right? Yeah. Because the ill-affiliated yeah. is, is growing by leaps and bounds, going from, what, 6 or 7%, like you mentioned earlier, to, what is it, 26% now in America? Well, their their birth rate didn't increase to bring you well, those what, numbers. What's changed it's in the, America? The culture has changed. What? The culture has changed. Yeah. You know, the media has know, changed. I don't I don't know how much other countries, obviously it varies, you know, if you don't have the media and Hollywood permeating every single piece of your life, every single minute, you wonder what, how that changes, right. that dynamic. Right. So related to this, but enough, but different enough that we should do some transition here, is uh, we had a great interview this week. Can we go ahead and go to this, do this, the interview, the, the Quran interview? Yeah. You okay with doing do that or am I stepping on toes here? Let's, let's do it. Okay. Do, do, uh, by the way, have you noticed how good I have been about not mentioning a certain something I'm not supposed to mention? Yes, we're halfway very sh- good. We're halfway through the show almost, and I haven't said a word about the thing I'm not supposed to mention. Aren't you proud of me? Uh-huh. Okay, <laughs> I'm just saying. So let's, uh, let's, let's get into this interview. We interviewed earlier this week. I don't remember. David and Sa- Sa- Sami, Sami, Sufi. What's I can't remember. Yeah, names. so I'm, I'm furious. Ter- I'm like <laughs> trying to pull I'm their terrible. names. Up. I'm so terrible with names. No, I well, I had the book in front of me, and then I brought it up. I actually have a copy of this Quran that they produced, and it's upstairs now. And I don't have it in my office. Um, but basically, the project is it. it's a Quran that has biblical references in it, and you right. have David, a Christian David Hungerford and Safi Kaskas. Perfect. Is that right? There you, go. there you go. Yes. And so David is a Christian. Safi is a Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've come together to produce a Quran in, in you know, quote unquote, modern language, you know, right. contemporary language that includes biblical references to what's in the Quran um, to try to break down barriers and get Christians and Muslims to not hate one another and to interact, not to convert anybody on either end, uh, but to basically bring peace. Is yeah. that a fair assessment? I think so. Yeah. They they want to open discussion and they, yeah they want people to get along. Can't we have differences of opinion and get along? And they're not and they're not trying to convert and they're they are also not trying to with this book, um, and they're also not trying to with this book say that all religions are the same or all religions are equal or all religions go to the same place point to the same place. I mean that's they all they all all religions attempt to point to God but they don't say that all religions are the same or will even lead to the same God. Would that is that fair? Yeah, and I think we I think we asked them some tough questions. There were some hard questions in there. I think that were challenging, and they did a good job. You know, we look. Th- this is it's a tough topic. It is, and I think you know, as a Christian, I'll be honest. My first reaction is, well, of course, you're putting references into the Bible. The Quran came after, and it's rewriting the Bible. Right. Um. So now that's a crass sort of whatever reaction. That was my first reaction. I think, though, as a Christian, that's what I believe. I don't believe. I don't believe in the Quran. I, believe in the Bible. Right. Uh, but I do think it's interesting in, in this effort to sort of show the parallel stories. I do think most Christians don't know about the many references to Jesus in the Quran yep. or how important Jesus is to Muslims. I think that that's a new thing for a lot of people. So yep. some of that was really interesting. It was. All right. So we're we going to do this. 
Roll it. It's Billy Hallowell here with the Church Boys Podcast. I have co-host Chris Field on the line. We also have two guests here today. We have Dr. David Hungerford, and we also have Dr. Safi Koskis. They are behind the new project, The Quran, with references to the Bible, a contemporary understanding. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. We're doing fine. Thank you. So you... You both are working on a project that I think comes at a really intriguing time. We have a lot of tension. Um, obviously, there's been tension between Muslims and Christians since 9-11, even before that. Uh, but 9-11, it really kicked up. And then in recent, the last couple of years, especially the last year, we've seen a lot of this tension really um, sort of uh, flare up again. And I wanted to just start by asking before we get into this this Quran um, project, how did the two of you come together and start working with one another? Because one of you is a Christian, Dr. Hungerford, and the other is a Muslim. So just take me through that relationship. Well, Safi and I met in January of 2010. Uh, we were uh, both board members of Bridges to Common Ground, and we had not uh, met before that. And we had started working on a project of uh, a new uh, contemporary uh, translation of the Quran uh, with the plan to put references to the Bible. And when we met, um, uh, Dr. Koskis had this as a dream and something which he, he had been uh, working on in his mind in preparation for. So it just uh, was a... Uh, a meeting uh, which was like a supersaturated solution. You drop a crystal in it, and all of a sudden it just coalesces, and that's really what happened. We were both kind of prepared for this project. And when we met, this collaboration just became like so obvious to us, and we've been working together on it uh, ever since. And let me ask you, um, Dr. Koskis, why did you so, – so you have the Quran. It's translated into an English version. Um, what, what, why was the decision made to put in references to the Bible as well in, in there? Well, basically, uh, the Quran as a translation in itself as a project revolutionized a lot of the meanings uh, that you can find in older translations – but here we have a contemporary reading of the Quran. Now, this contemporary reading of the Quran will not be complete and fulfilled unless we have uh, 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 verses that are similar to the message of the Quran from the Bible. Uh, I, I usually tell people a story about this. I tell them that uh, when I first came to the United States, if it wasn't for my American neighbors opening their hearts and their homes for me, I wouldn't have made it. I feel a, a debt to this country. Uh, I hate to see that uh, the same Americans that opened their heart and homes for me are feeling bad about Muslims now. I want to repair this relationship. The only way to repair it is to show the common ground we have. The best way to do this is from our holy books. If We, if we, we have succeeded in showing that uh, over 3,000 verses from the Bible have similar meaning to verses from the Quran. That's that. 
Very good. Very good. And what are you both hoping and I'll allow either of you, whoever, maybe both of you want to want to answer this and you just spoke to it a little bit. You know, let's say somebody picks this up and it could be a Christian. They're interested in knowing maybe they've never read the Quran. They want to know what's in it. Um, or maybe it's a Muslim who doesn't know the the association, the attachment to the, the Bible and, and the you know shared similarities. What are you hoping the end result is? What are you hoping people get out of this? You know, um, one of the problems with any kind of a phobia, uh, any kind of uh, fear of another group, is ignorance. And that is in abundance between Muslims and Christians. I think Christians know actually less about uh, Islam and less about Muslims than Muslims know about Christians. Although, I think there's a lot of um, misinformation and misunderstanding. For example, the Christians that I talk to, that I sit next to in church, when I tell them the way Jesus is presented in the Quran as born of a virgin, without sin, created by the breath of God, uh, raises the dead, heals the blind, is referred to as Messiah, they're incredulous. And yet, that's exactly the way Jesus is portrayed in the Quran. So, what our hope is, is that Christians will read it, and the eyes of their misunderstanding and the depth of their ignorance will be dispelled. So they can now look upon Muslims as part of the Abrahamic tradition, and that Muslims... Three times as many Muslims read English as, as Arabic. So this will be a, a Quran that they can read in a language that they understand. And they will also see, because the verses are at the bottom of the page, when, it talk, when the Quran talks about Moses, the Bible verses talking about Moses, when it talks about uh, Mount Sinai, when it talks about crossing the Red Sea, when it talks about the children of Israel wandering in the desert, when they read that and see that these are all the stories that are referenced in the Bible, when they see how Jesus is referenced in the Bible and how he's referenced in the Quran, they too, their eyes will be opened and their hearts will be softened toward the other. And they can go from enemies or at least strangers who have no contact with each other to people who can actually have an open discussion. You know, and Chris, do you have anything before well, I continue? I was just, just going to ask along those lines. I think one of the concerns that, that a lot of people have reflexively is that this sounds like a form of Unitarianism, like where all faiths are the same and they, read, they lead to the exact same place. Is that what's going on here, or is this more of a, hey, listen, no. we, have similar, no. we have similarities, but this allows us to at least have a discussion and understand each other. Is that more the yes, direction? Yes, indeed. This is it. We, I, I am a practicing Muslim. David is a practicing Christian. I uh, want him to have the freedom to practice his, uh, worshiping God his way, and I want him to give me the freedom to, pra- to worship God my way. This is not to uh, show uh, one religion or a unified religion. No. We're talking about Islam and Christianity finding common ground and allowing all American citizens to practice their religion freely. 
because we, we have that constitutional right, basically. Right. And our holy books allow us to do this. So this is, this is not a, a, an attempt to, to, to merge the two religions. And, and uh, uh, I respect the, the, the Christian religion that, uh, that is David's religion, and he respects Islam as my religion. That's all. Good. Yeah, and I think that's the, you know, we, we live in a time where everyone's so divided on every front, not just religion, politics, every, you know, we're all so divided, and it is, it is important to be able to separate out extremism from, from mainstream, and then to be able to also, you know, in, in, on any level, um, and to be able to respect one another regardless of differences, and so it's a really, it's an interesting project to me. Um, in that it speaks to a lot of those things that, again, are going on right now. Even in the presidential race, there's a lot of debate, a lot of discussion about um, these issues. And I think this is a harder question, and it's not a gotcha question. It's just one I want to throw out to you guys. You know, the the key question that a lot of critics who are skeptical and don't know and they're and they're confused, they will ask, you know, why are so many people in the name of Islam doing these things, you know, waging these attacks? And I know, and I don't know what you guys think about that or how you would respond to those people, but I wanted to throw that out there because I think that's the core question that creates a lot of the fear and, and misunderstanding. I would like David to start and I'd like to finish the, the answer on this. Sounds good. If you look at religion, there has never been a time in mankind where somebody who professes that religion has not taken aspects of it out of context and distorted its meaning. If we look at Christianity, Christianity was used to justify uh, the Inquisition, to justify burning witches, to justify um, pogroms, to justify slavery. Now, is that uh, an integral part of Christianity, or is that a distortion and a perversion of Christianity? I would submit it doesn't represent the message of Christianity. And so every religion is subject to distortion by people who want to use it to justify uh, their bad deeds. And... Those bad deeds generally involve control, power, and money. Chuck Colson wrote a book called Kingdoms in Conflict, in which he maintained that most religious wars were not religious wars. They were wars of power, greed, control, and money. And I think that that's what we have today. It's a just uh, the jihadists or the terrorists have taken aspects of the Quran completely out of context and applied it in a way in which the original never intended. Safi. So could I? Could I? Yes. So before before you, before you start your your answer, and maybe this would be part of your answer. Uh, I, Billy and I both are wondering, I, I would say that the, the founding of Christianity by Jesus is different from the founding of Islam by the prophet Muhammad, right? I mean, right? I mean they're two very different people, are they not? I mean, it wasn't, wasn't one 
more about all about love and the other was about preaching love, but also there was a, a conquest aspect or am I just ignorant of my history? Um, uh, what, what your question is very important. I'd like to answer it, but I'd like to go back to the previous answer first. Okay, sure. Because my main concern as an American Muslim is what's happening to the United States at this time. Right. Because before we go back historically and look at the two religions, I'm telling you, I practice religion. I understand Islam. In order to translate the Quran, I had to read every word, think about it, contemplate it. Uh, and try to find an equivalent meaning in English. That means I understand the Quran a whole lot more than an average Muslim that might not read Arabic or might not have taken the time, six years, actually think about this. From my own experience, that sounds like a cliche, but uh, I, I uh, David and I, together, uh, have a relation of peace. We are a model of what we show other people. We just came back from uh, several day trips to North and South Carolina to various mosques and churches, and we presented ourselves as a model for Muslims and Christians to worship freely, yet allow each other room so they can, uh, we can all live together in peace. What I'm concerned about because I love this country, is a strong United States. And the only way we can do this is if we allow each other room to breathe. If we, if, if we continue to beat the Muslims on the head and call their name and call their religion name, they're going to feel that they are unjustifiably attacked. If we do this, they're going to hold grudges. This is the first step to get somebody to be radicalized. Mm. But if we open our heart, our mind, if we love our neighbors, if we forgive them, if we try to treat them as equal citizens, this will make them feel the same way I felt when I first came here. Wanted, accepted, welcomed, and this will, will always uh, produce uh, a feeling of, of loyalty from the person toward the country, especially that they have a chance here to, to exercise, to express the, uh, their ideas in freedom. So basically, we didn't only... Uh, translate the, the book and found equivalent verses uh, in the Quran, but in the, in the Bible. But we also are going ourselves to mosques and churches, presenting the book and ourselves as an example of two Americans that love this country, that love their religion and practice it, each one his own way, as an example for people to live together in peace. This is basically what we're trying to do. Now, uh, do, do you want me now to uh, answer your other question about yeah. the historicity of uh, Islam and Christianity? Ab absolutely. I'm intrigued. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, of course, we all know that the way uh, Jesus was born. In the Quran, he had a miraculous, miraculous birth. Uh, his birth was miraculous. His life was miraculous. The Quran states miracles that are not even stated in the Bible. Uh, you know, everything about Jesus as far as we are concerned as Muslims, is miraculous. He was the breath of God, the spirit of God, and the word of God. That's what the Quran teaches us, not what the Bible teaches us, what the Quran teaches us. This is what, this is what Muhammad told us. Then he said something else. He said, Jesus is coming back. Once he comes back, I want you all, 1.6 billion people, to follow him. So we will follow him based on the word of Muhammad. He couldn't be that bad. 
giving us those instructions. <laughs> right. Of course, we all know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We we, we know we, we we know him and we love him. You can't be a Muslim unless you love Jesus. We don't worship Jesus. We worship the way Jesus worshiped God in the Garden of the Gethsemane. <laughs> we worship with the same prayer that Jesus taught us to our Father in heaven. All this we have in common. Let's focus on it. Now, Muhammad, for 13 years after he received his first revelation, 13 years, he was 40 when he received the first revelation, until he was 53. He was hurt, uh, rejected, persecuted. He and his followers never lift a finger to defend himself because he had uh, no instruction from God to defend themselves. And then when the hurt became un unbearable, he told his followers, if you cannot stand it anymore, please go to Abyssinia, it has, which is Ethiopia today. It has a Christian king who is known to be just. So he sent his follower to a Christian king to get protection. Hmm. Then later on, he was approached by the people of Medina to rule over them. He became a ruler. That little entity, that little town, uh, needed to defend itself from attacks. All these wars you hear about were wars of defense. The Quran certified it. Uh, I'm certifying it to you. And other than wars of defense, no war is allowed. So this is basically the Islam I understand. Hmm. And the Islam I try to explain to others every time I visit a mosque and every time I engage Muslims in discussion. Uh, now, it is true that some Muslims misinterpret Islam to mean something else. I'm doing my best. Other people like me doing their best. We are fighting for survival to defend what we believe to be a religion of peace. We might win if everybody help us, or we might lose this battle if everybody keep hammering Islam, hammering Islam and Muslims on the head. Please help. I'm asking you, I'm begging you, please help. Show your Muslim neighbors love and understanding. Go meet them. Talk to them. Uh, try to befriend them. Uh, accept their invitation to dinner. Uh, get to know them. I think this is the best way we can build peace. I think that's, I think it's, I think that's great advice. Could I ask? I know we have to wrap up. Billy's telling me we have to let them go. It's, <laughs> it's time to okay, let them go. Let me, let, me, let me just throw in something because there's, a, um, there, there's nothing in Jesus' message that would indicate the founding of a religion. Christianity was actually founded as a religion by Constantine right. in the 4th century. That was the founding of the religion. Jesus only said, follow me. He taught, and he said, follow me. So up until the adoption of the followers of Jesus as a state religion, it was a movement. Muhammad was not the Muhammad was was a prophet, but he was not the founder of of a religion. He was a prophet who brought the entire Arabian Peninsula back from idol worship to worship the God of Abraham. 
and and, so, and I I, sh- I should have been clear. You're correct. They're not the founders of the religion. They are they are perceived at least as being the central figures of those two religions. Whether whether that's accurate or not about the, the Prophet Muhammad, um, they they that is how he is perceived. Um, can I now? Can I ask you one more question pertaining to current events and uh, and I Go know ahead. and and Billy, I'm sure is just screaming at me right now. Off, mic. I am, I am. <laughs> but text We're okay. You. So We're all right. take, take your time. Take all right. your time. Okay, good. So nowadays, there's a big debate about and and I and I 100% agree with be friends with your Islamic neighbors or any or any neighbor or and and especially those of other religions so we can have these discussions and have these conversations. Uh, there, yes, there's a current debate, uh, especially in the political world about how do we treat what is called Islamic radicalism and Islamic terrorism? Is that there's a real bone of contention that some folks have with, with the current administration that they won't call it terrorism or they won't call it Islamic terrorism. Is that something, uh, how do how do you deal with that debate over how this terrorism is properly uh, described? If you're asking me, I will, uh, I will tell you that terrorism is when you attack civilians. That's terrorism. Uh, but in, on the other hand, after 9-11, I think if we follow Jesus' advice to love our enemies and build prosperity, sending prosperity there instead of sending uh, uh, missiles, I think you would have a different enemy at this time. That enemy can become a friend. Right. Uh, we spent already $5 trillion uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, you know, I don't think we have much to show for it. I think uh, what, will, what will change the situation in the world is if United States, the leader of the free world, for sure, try to build prosperity for poor people, at least schools, at least some factories, at least uh, uh, teach them new ways of pr- production. Uh, that will create love. That will create cooperation and help. I think uh, we are a wealthy country. Uh, we are the leader of the free world. Let's use that in a very constructive way, and let's practice loving our enemy. Thank you. All right. Well, you guys have been great. We would love to have you back again. Um, We'd uh, love we to could, come back. We could go on for another hour about all this. I think it's it's really interesting, and I think the conversations you're starting are going to be fascinating and important. And again, thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll we'll be happy to come back. Great. All right. We'll have a good one. All good right. luck. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. The founder of this company... 10 years ago, was trying to sell his house. He's, you know, he's kind of an important guy. And he said to his wife, if this is what it's like for us, how do people who have no clout ever get around this? So he started a company and it went into business, I think three years ago. Their deal is, their word is their bond. And they are people that listen to this show. They are just like you. Now, how can I say that? Because I'm the founder of the company. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Back to the church boys. So we've, you know, we had that great interview, which you can find out more about that Quran. And if you want to grab a copy of it, you can, uh, if you're interested in seeing what those biblical references are. But, 
you know, we also had another interview this week, and it's this woman, Sarah Rodriguez. And you know, Chris doesn't know much about this story. I don't think we've ever talked about it, but it was one of those stories that you know, you, you write a bunch of content. A lot of it was curated at The Blizz. Some of it was original, and this was an original interview. This woman, Sarah, is a blogger um, and had this crazy personal story, and she had reached out to me a couple of years ago and said, hey, I'd love to talk with you about my story. Um, she's a Christian, and I don't want to spoil all of it for you, but it really is one of those stories where you just have to sort of you know, think, wow. So what's her, what's her background? I mean, why, why, was, why is her story relevant? So Sarah, Sarah was married, and her husband, Joel, uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and the two of them were trying to have a baby. And so long story short, he goes through this cancer battle, um, they had to essentially um, turn to doctors to conceive, and they did. They had a son. Um, and then her her husband passes away. He dies. And so she's a single mom with this kid, and they're young. I mean, her husband died. I think he was 30 or 33. Wow. Um, and so here she is young without a husband, and she remembers this conversation with her husband where he had said to her, Sarah, you know, we're going to have a little girl. And he was like sick in the hospital telling her this. And she's right. thinking, uh-huh, yeah, there's no way that's ever happening right. with our situation. Right. And we're going to name her Ellis. And she had remembered this, you know, this dream she had years ago about holding a baby girl. And the baby was named was Ellis. And she had never heard that name before. And so she had told her husband that. And then years later, he's saying to her, we're going to have a baby. So he passes away and she starts thinking she just can't get this thought out of her head. You know, they still had some embryos that were frozen. Um, and, you know, she thought, well, I'm a single mom. I mean, should should I do this? I mean, she, what? she's like, look, I have a 30 percent chance of, of this taking. Right. So if it's God's will, I feel compelled to do this. So she ends up implanting the embryos and has a baby girl who she wow. named Ellis. Wow. That's now cool. where I'll stop is there, because what happens next is a huge test of faith. Um, and she almost loses that baby. And so I, I'll let her tell the story. But the entire thing is crazy, and I'm not doing it justice. But let's let's roll it, let people hear her story. Now, she has a book out, by the way, which we'll talk about in the interview. It's called From Depths We Rise. It comes out next week, and it's amazing. So right. go. It's Billy Hollowell here with the Church Boys Podcast, and I have Sarah Rodriguez on the line. How you doing today, Sarah? I'm great, Billy. Thanks for having me today. So I always love, you know, it's been a while since we've had a chance to um, reconnect, but when I was with The Blaze, you know, I covered your story. And so a lot of people might be familiar with your story. Some people might not be. We'll go through all the details of it, but you have um, a new book out that's coming out actually in, in about a week um, as of the date that we published this interview. And the book is From Depths We Rise. Let's just, there's so many parts of your story that just get me. And I think so many parts of your story that can really, I think, help a lot of other people. But let's just start um, with your husband, Joel. I want to kind of go through, um, you lost your husband, Joel, uh, to cancer in 2013. Can you just Take me through, and we'll just dive right in. Um, take me through the diagnosis, the the battle with with cancer, and just what that was like when you found out, and and how it impacted the the two of you. Yeah, well, I always tell people that the our first battle we ever faced was infertility, and we had tried for years after we got married to get pregnant, and right when we were about to take the next step with infertility, um, to do IVF. 
um, my husband and I had just ran a half marathon and we were in the best shape of our lives. And one day, just totally out of the blue, my husband passed blood in his urine and it was, it was concerning for us. And so he went to the hospital and the a CT scan was ordered and it was eventually um, shown that he had kidney cancer, which was a huge shock to us because at that point in time, you know, we we're in some, we we're super healthy and he was, um, doing well. He had no other symptoms. So to get that kind of a diagnosis, just totally out of the blue, it sent us reeling. How old were you guys at that point? Okay. So I was about to turn 28 and he was about to turn 32. And so, and the reason I ask that is because here are two very young people who are healthy. Um, Mm. you know, I'm 32 now and I think about this and it's, and being confronted with something like that, has got to be incredibly shocking. Um, how did that change your lives in that in that moment? You know, first finding out. You know, it put everything into perspective really quickly. All of a sudden, you know, it was interesting because none of our friends were walking through what we were walking through, not only with infertility, but now with cancer. And so we were viewing the world with a different set of lenses, and we were going through um, the fight for his life. And that was something that we battled um, fiercely from the moment we found out to the moment of his death. And so it caused us to grow up really quickly. It caused us to um, focus on the things that were important and kind of let go of the things that weren't. Basically, it just caused us to grow up in a moment. Yeah, no, I I can't imagine. And so um, now take me through the, the, the battle. Was there a point of, of remission then at some point and how long did that take? Yeah. Yeah. He had initially, he had surgery to remove the kidney and the cancer and then he did a year of chemo and he went into remission. And during that point was when we did IVF the first time and we had a healthy baby boy. And a few days after his birth, um, we got a phone call um, that my husband's cancer had returned. And so here we were balancing joy of finally having this long-awaited son with the grief of the fact that we were now fighting for his life once again. And so by that point, um, he had to go back and do chemo, and he did chemo for another year, which did not work. So then he had to have a surgery to try to remove the cancer. And after that, he had a series of strokes, which he never recovered from, and he ended up passing away. He was 35 years old. And that was and that was 2013 um, when when you lost your husband. Um, yes. It's just because I'm I'm curious to know. You, know, you mentioned you just said you know you you have a baby. You're so excited. I mean that feeling you have as a parent when you have a baby. The days following that, it's just an amazing experience. Um, and then in that same process, when you're having one of the most amazing things happen to you, you get this awful horrific news. How do you balance? I mean, how do you, as Christians especially, right, um, who mm-hmm. look at the world through the lens as as in in crises, we try to do it as much as we can through the lens of the gospel and and look to God. How do you process a time like that? I mean, how did you guys get through that? Well, what I always focus on, and especially in that instance, was just the goodness of God. 
and that he is good in both situations because goodness is who he is. Goodness is his character. So he was still good. He was good when we just had a brand new gift of a child, but he was also good in my husband's cancer diagnosis because the situation wasn't going to dictate that be an either or thing. So that's what we concentrated on. It was just like, God, you're good. God, you're good. I know we're walking through this and I don't understand why we're having to walk through this a second time. I don't understand why it's happening on the hills of such joy that you're good. And that's what we're going to focus on. So before your before Joel passed away, um, he talked to you about having another child, correct? Yes. Yes. We had a conversation when he was, because after he had a stroke, there was a little bit of time where he got well enough to go and try to do rehab before he had a, a second and third stroke. But during that time in rehab, we didn't have a lot of really serious conversations, but we had one one day that changed my story forever because we're sitting in his room and I was rubbing his back and he said, I need to tell you something. And I said, what? And he said, you and I are going to have another child and it's going to be a little girl. And I said, okay, you know, cause I'm looking at him thinking there's no way we're going to have any other children with our situation like it is. But he said, no, he was so insistent. He said, we're going to have another child and it's going to be a girl and you know what to name her. And I had had a dream years prior, just a random dream about me holding a baby girl and her name was Ellis. And that was never a name I'd heard used for a baby before. Um, and so that was interesting. When I woke up, I looked up the meaning of the name Ellis and it meant the same thing as his name, which is Jehovah is God. And so we kind of always tucked that in our back pocket. Well, if we were to ever have a girl, that's a really cool name, you know, for yeah. her. But then in that moment, he's telling me, we're going to have a child and it's going to be a girl and you know what to name her. And once he died, that was one of the first things that my mind went back to is that conversation about this little girl that he was telling me that we were going to have. And so... I mean, you become, you're a single parent suddenly and you've lost the love of your life and, and you're processing all that and you're thinking about this conversation. So what, what do you do next at that, at that point? Well, at that point we had our last two final embryos left. And so our clinic, um, every clinic is different, but ours will not destroy embryos. So you kind of have to make a decision about what you want to do. Um, some people donate them. There's lots of things, but, um, in that moment, I had to make a decision. What well, you know, I have these embryos. He's gone, but a piece of him is still here. And what am I going to do? You know, with the, with these embryos. And my mind again kept going back to the to the conversation. And I prayed about it and talked to my friends and family. And just it was the hardest decision I've ever wrestled with. But in the end, I decided to make the choice to implant the embryos and put it in God's hands. And whatever was supposed to happen would happen. Would, did anybody say, I mean, I imagine you've got a variety of opinions. Did anybody say, this is crazy, don't do it, you're a single mother? Or, you know, did you get reactions like that in the process of asking people? I, I don't, if people thought that, most people didn't come up and say it to me. <laughs> right, right. Um, I think my dad, if there was one person that was a little bit weary, it was my dad. But to his credit, you know, he's a believer too. And he just felt like, okay, if you feel like this is something that God's putting on your heart, I'm going to support you in it. But I think my parents were probably the most concerned as to what would happen. Which is what you'd expect, because parents worry about yeah. their kids, their well-being. And here you are, you know, trying to do this as a parent alone and in a situation that you had never probably imagined you would ever, you would ever be in. Um, mm-hmm. But feeling this, you know, pull to do something like that. Um, 
So now you get you get. Well, pregnant. I think too statistically, there's only like a thirty percent chance of it working a second time with frozen embryos, and so for me, the chances were way less that it would work than it would work. So I, in my mind, I thought, well, statistically, well, you know, the odds aren't on my side, and so if it does happen, that will even be a bigger confirmation for me that it was supposed to happen. And then you have, even if it does happen, you have the the chance of having a boy and not a girl, right? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. so, so you go through with this, you do it, and and you become pregnant, and you have mm-hmm. a baby. You have baby Ellis. Yep, a little girl. Now. And and this is the part of your story, and I remember you te- when I first talked to you about the about what happened. I think um, you've gone through all these things, and then you hit this um, a huge, amazingly huge, um, horrible roadblock after you have Ellis. Take me through what happens in the aftermath, not long after having the baby. So I had had a completely normal pregnancy, and she was born beautiful and healthy with no issues. And then at the two-week mark, when she was two weeks old, one morning she just became really lethargic. And so she was also a little warm, and I was concerned. And I took her into her pediatrician, who immediately told us to go to the ER at my local hospital. Then that ER transferred us by ambulance to the Children's Hospital in Oklahoma City. And by that evening, my beautiful, healthy daughter was on a ventilator fighting for her life. And we were told that she had sepsis and bacterial meningitis, and um, the odds were not good. And as time went on, um, it got worse. She had seizures. She had strokes. Um, An MRI showed that most of her brain had been eaten up um, or was dead, had holes in it. Um, Basically, they told us that she would not live, and if she did, she would be in a vegetative state. And so it got to the point where she even stopped breathing along with her vent, and a tough decision had to be made to remove the vent. Now, just to pause for a moment in the middle of this, and I know when, when these things are going on, you don't have the time to pause in the middle of a crisis and think many times, but... Here you are, after going through the, all of this with your husband, feeling like this is something God wanted you to do. You implant the embryos. You have a baby. You have a baby girl. You name her Ellis. And all of these things seem to be lining up with what you feel like God was calling you to do. And then here you are in a hospital being told this baby is not going to make it. What, what goes through your head and how do you process that in the few moments you have to do so? I would like to say that I had this amazing, um, enlightened moment of <laughs> of faith, but really in that moment, it was the lowest my faith had ever been. I did not understand it, and I spent many hours in the hospital just crying and asking him why, because I didn't understand. I didn't understand why, you know, why the miracle of her life, why her name, why why this conversation with my husband, if it was all going to end at this point. And it was the lowest that I'd ever been. It was it was the most difficult moments of wrestling with God and saying, I thought this was who you were, you know, but why is this happening to me? Haven't I endured enough? You know, people ask if I felt like Job, and truly it felt like a Job-like moment, you know, just wrestling with, with who God was and who He was to me. I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, I remember you 
saying that you kind of went into the bathroom and prayed, right? There was a moment where, you, mm-hmm. but because the doctors had said, I believe the words you had used in, in a past interview with me was incompa- you know, the baby incompatible with life, basically, that this mm-hmm. was not going to be, you, you had to make the decision. The recommendation was to take Ellis off of the ventilator. Um, so mm-hmm. at that point, what are you saying to God in those moments before you're about to go out and, and have that happen? You know, I had spent weeks watching her die right before my eyes and just feeling like God wasn't hearing any prayer that I was praying. He sure wasn't answering, <clears throat> excuse me, he wasn't answering any prayer that I had prayed. And so I thought that she was just going to die. You know, I thought there was no hope because that's what I was being told. But right before they they took her off the vent, I had asked for them to lay her on my chest, skin to skin, like she had when she had come from the womb. So I ducked into a bathroom really quickly to change into a hospital gown. And that was the moment that I'll never forget because I said, God, I don't know if you can, or I don't know if you will, but I know that you can. And I know that 30 days with her is not enough. So please, please let my baby girl not die. Please don't allow her to die. It's just not enough time. And in that moment, I realized, you know, I'd spent all this time asking and struggling with what I believed in God. But in that moment, it showed me what I believed of him because I believed that he still could heal. So you, you walk out of the bathroom, the doctors remove Ellis from the ventilator and take me through. I know you had wanted to read to her. You'd wanted to spend some time with her and try to make those final moments, what you thought would be those final moments, peaceful. Take me through what happens. Well, they put her on my chest and they unhooked her from every tube except for a little um, thing that they had placed on her foot where they could monitor her vitals um, from outside the room and they were going to come in and tell us when she had passed. So I had her on my chest. I was, like you said, reading her her first and last book and just crying over her and we had um, music playing and I was singing to her and I was just expecting her to go at any time. I thought it would happen quickly like it had with my husband and time went on and she let out a cry and then she was moving and wiggling around and, and she wasn't seizing, you know, she had been seizing for weeks and weeks straight. And as soon as they put her on my chest, she completely stopped. And so I remember at one point turning to my dad and saying, can you, can you go check with them? You know, what's going on with her vitals? And he came back in the room and he said, her heart rate is fine. Her breathing rate is fine. All her vitals look perfect. And we're all looking around the room like, what is happening? Because her vitals hadn't been perfect for weeks. And here all of a sudden she's off all the tubes. She's off all the medicine. She's in my arms and everything is, is going back to perfection with her. And it was just this moment of, oh my goodness, are we witnessing a miracle? What what have the di- now now Ellis is almost two years old now correct? Yeah, she's two years old. What, she'll be two in November. She'll be two in November. So what? Um, and it's and it's interesting because our kids are my kid just turned four, and I know your your son just turned four, correct? Mm-hmm, and then yes. and my other kid just turned one, so you know about a year behind. But it's interesting, and and you know you as a parent to have this moment. Um, of this of this miracle, what what feels like this has to be a miracle? What have doctors said to you? What have the doctors who treated Ellis said about all of this? About the this miraculous he, uh, healing and recovery? 
Well, at first, you know, within the first few hours, they said, well, she's a fighter, but she'll probably still die, you know, in a couple hours or, or maybe she'll die tomorrow. I mean, they were dumbfounded that she was able to go from not breathing on a vent to now breathing room air completely on her own, which I've been told now is that in a, of itself is miraculous. But, you know, by because we stayed in the hospital an extra week after that and they transferred us to the floor. And by the end of the week, doctors and nurses were just coming in the room saying, we just want to look at her because she's a miracle. She should not be here. And, you know, within 24 hours, Ellis was taking a bottle on her own after she hadn't taken a bottle in weeks. And they said she wouldn't have the brain capacity to take a bottle. They said she wouldn't have the brain capacity to breathe. So the fact that here's this child breathing and sucking from a bottle, she was just defying the odds. And every single doctor, every single nurse told me she was a miracle. How is Ellis now? You know, take me through how she how she's doing at almost two. Yeah, she's doing great. Um, her only appointments are her pediatric check-ins, like like typical babies, and then she does physical and occupational therapy once a week. And she's doing well. She's playing catch up in some areas, but in other areas, she's ahead of the curve. And she's talking and saying all kinds of words and eating finger foods and rolling and sitting up and standing. And we're, we're really focusing on walking right now and, and teaching her to do that. And so, you know, everything that she learns, it, it's a process we do have to teach her, but it's so rewarding once she gets it. And it's so rewarding to see these things that we were told she would never do. And she's knocking it out one by one. And she's the most spicy, stubborn, spirited girl, and she inspires me every day. I mean, it's just an a, it's an amazing story on so many levels. So let me ask you what, and this is the question that it, it may be difficult to answer. It may not be. Maybe we'll never know the answer. But I want to know what you think. Why do you think God allowed all of these things? You know, I that's I think that that's part of the mystery of God, and I think that He keeps. Some things a mystery because it keeps us seeking him always. You know, if we knew and understood everything, then then there would be no need to have dependence on him. And, you know, we never want to talk about suffering. Um, we always want to talk about blessing, but in suffering, um, I've become a better version of myself, and I've gotten to see God work and move on my behalf in ways that some people don't ever get to see in their life. And there's a verse in Job where he talks about God, and he said, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. And, and that's how I feel in our situation is before maybe it was just words on a page or a Bible verse, but um, in my situation it became flesh. You know, the Word became flesh right in front of my eyes, and it caused me to, to become um, a different version of myself and view the world um, through a different set of lenses. And I'm, in many ways, I'm grateful for what we've walked through. Um, but there's a lot of things that are a mystery about it and that I'll never know and that I joke that as soon as I see him face-to-face, -face, I've got lots of questions to ask him. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I just, I admire you being so willing to share your story, too. I think there that a lot of people go through things they don't share. And, and here you've put out a book, again, it's from Depths We Rise, about what you've gone through and, and all of, all of these different elements. And I think we probably scratched the surface of the major, you know, the major details. There's a lot more of a finer details of the book document. Tell me, why did you choose to write the book and, and what are you hoping um, it, will, it will do for others who read it? 
Well, from the beginning when my husband was first diagnosed with cancer, I started a blog. And that's kind of how all of these these later events ended up happening. But we were just determined that we would use our story for good and that our light, our life was going to be a light to the darkness. And that was a commitment that we made from the start. And I find that we get when we give him our stories and when we're vulnerable to tell them, he will use them in powerful ways. And that's what I've seen him do um, beyond what I could have ever imagined with our story. And, you know, in the days that we live in, there's so many negative headlines. You know, every single day I'm like, this world is just getting crazier and crazier. But, you know, I have my story in the ways that I've seen him be God and be good within my own life. And that's the hope that I hope our story is able to bring to others in the times which which we live. Well, listen, this has been great, and we're going to make sure we link out to the book and give people a chance to, to grab copies of it. And I appreciate, as always, getting a chance to tell your story and hear your story. And, you know, I hope I hope people learn a lot from you because I think there's a lot to learn that after everything that you could still uh, maintain your faith and keep your faith. Um, and... and I love that you kind of admit, you know, look, the remote, you, your faith was at its lowest in the middle of, of a lot of this, but yet here you are telling the story and, and still showing how much you, you love God. I think there's something very powerful about that. Yeah. Thank you, Billy. Thank you so much. Well, we'll hope to have you back soon, and I appreciate you coming on. Yes. Thanks, Billy. So we got to get going here in a minute. <clears throat> Billy's got stuff to do. He's got to pretend to care about his kids and um, some sort of responsibility. Allegedly. Allegedly. Has. See, I'm not even sure I believe he has kids. I've never seen him actually with his children. Um, mostly because I don't believe there's any way in the world he ever convinced any woman to procreate. So you realize that you host a Christian show. I'm right? sorry, what? So you heard the the word Christian you can't hear. I don't think the Antichrist is able to hear that word. <laughs> so, so, okay, so we'll go from that not so crass subject to um <clears throat> this is just breaking on the on the interwebs here. The police in Miami are saying that a naked Donald Trump statue has been stolen. <laughs> Billy Hallow <laughs> lead suspect. <laughs> Honestly, if we had to pick somebody, it would be Mike Opelka, no? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I heard Opelka talking. Have you seen, you've seen these statues, right? Yes. Okay, so Opelka was talking about the statues. He was filling out, he was filling in for Doc or, or somebody, and somebody brought up these statues, and he was taking calls, and somebody said, yeah, I saw the pictures of Donald Trump, and I didn't know Donald had an Audi. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you have Honestly. To see, you have to I'm He's, why? Did, why do we know why the person so made the statue? Because I've tried to avoid every story surrounding it. Because they're hysterical, and be, be, so the idiots like me would talk about it. That's why they made it. Anyway, police in South Florida say they have a person of interest in the theft of a naked Donald Trump statue. Apparently, it's a collector's <laughs> item. <laughs> there's there's one, something wrong with this country. There is. There's a lot of things wrong with this country, but. So you have you have seen these Donald Trump statues? I have, yeah, uh, I have. I've are, tried to avoid them, but they they're... are a little bit um, more detailed than I care 
for. But well, once you've seen it, you can't unsee you it. No, it's, it's a, it's a bell that cannot be unrung, right? So, anyway. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> oh, right, I hate we, you. I do, too. Um, so, I love doing I I like doing this show. Don't you like doing this show? I do like doing the show. Should we keep that? Should we keep doing I think it? we should I think we should try to do do like a daily show. We just need all of you out there to donate tons of money to make it happen. Donate tons of money and listen harder, right? Because I I would love to make this a daily show if we had the time, not the daily show, but a daily show, a daily podcast. I would love for it to be that way, but you know there's no way you and I have the time or resources to do that right now. But well, the problem is, and nobody would be able to see us twerking, which I think would be the main draw. Well, we would because we don't listen, have a video we, component we, yet. Listen, we start doing this full time and it becomes a daily thing. There will be video, and then I'll of course have to put on clothes. But well, actually, and and I'm going to put it out there so that you can shame me into doing it, or if I don't do it, you can shame me. We are going to start live streaming on Facebook oh. our recording of the show, which I'm sure you'll get to see the hot mess behind the hot mess. That means Chris. You'll get to see Chris. So okay, that's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to being on video with you. Uh, so let me close with this, and then we will uh, we'll get out of here. Why aren't I 50 points ahead, you might ask? Well, the choice for working families has never been clearer. I need your help to get Donald Trump's record out to everybody. Nobody should be fooled. He proudly declared himself like the Grim Reaper. 100% even hired a union-busted The Church Boys.